Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I'm here with Natasha Harrison. Natasha, great to be with you. Hi, Raf. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me on. Ah, I'm looking forward to our convo. So um, just can you briefly introduce yourself to, uh, to the listeners, please? Yeah. So uh, I'm Natasha, as you say, and I am based in Scotland. Um, I teach mat work Pilates and apparatus, and I've been teaching since 2017. So quite a new career for me. Um, and I, yeah, I trained with a comprehensive training school. So that was all on all the bits of kit in contemporary style. Um, I'm a mum. I've got two great kids and a husband. Um, yeah, and enjoying some sunshine in Scotland at the moment. Huh. Um, so something I've been meaning to ask you about for a while, actually, is I don't, my, to my ear, your accent doesn't sound Scottish, you sound British. Have I mistaken that? Yeah, no, I sound English, yeah, no. I was, my mum's a Londoner and my dad's Scottish, and I was uh -huh. actually born in Scotland, but I was months old when they moved to London, and I spent the first, 14 years of my life in London, picked up the accent, um, but I've been in Scotland ever since then. So just didn't lose it. Got it. So um, over the last, we, we, the topic of today's conversation is how you've changed your, or how your understanding of pain has changed and really your journey to, to um, an a an evidence-based holistic view of um you know, pain and injury and and function so can can you uh in fact you know we, we were going to talk about um other things <laughs> but really we just got onto this topic because this was you know we were talking we we're talking we we're talking about what we we're going to talk about on the on the podcast and you said really the biggest thing that's changed for you over the last few years has been your understanding of pain so could you just out, could you start by outlining what your understanding of pain was you know in the before state you know let's go backwards a couple of years you know how did you conceptualize pain well i think uh, the reason like the the pain topic was such a big one for me um and my understanding of pain has changed is because I, so I'm 50 now, and when I was 20, I had a bad road accident. Um, I was on the back of a motorbike that a drunk driver smashed into. And I'm very, very lucky to have my left leg. Following that accident, they were going to amputate it. I spent 11 months in hospital, had 15 plus surgeries to, uh, to rebuild my leg. So after that, um, to varying degrees and at different times, I experienced pain with my left leg. Um, so I think subconsciously my, my understanding of pain before is that pain and injury are the same thing, or they're definitely very closely related. And if you have pain, that must mean there's some, something going on in that area of your body, in the tissue there, you know, some damage, or if you do have arthritis and you start getting more pain it must mean that the arthritis is getting worse for example you know and as a pilates teacher as a new pilates teacher you know if somebody said all oh, that hurts i would have said oh well stop that then you know 
Um, so I've had my own journey with pain and then through learning um, about pain on the diploma and looking at the evidence and that pain is always multifactorial and never just what's going on with the tissues and that pain and injury aren't the same thing, which that's like mm, a head scratcher, you know, well, it was at the time. Um, it's totally changed my relationship with my own pain. And it was a real head twister for a while. <laughs> you know, I had to scratch my head for quite a while. And it was very, it was a very kind of personal, emotional acceptance kind of journey, actually. Because when you've experienced pain like that, it's kind of, it becomes a part of who you are in a way. So for then to somebody say, well, you're not experiencing that pain for the reasons you thought you were, you know, the reasons the doctors told you, they gave you um, diagnosis of extreme osteoarthritis and all oh, you need a new knee, etc. And you thought you were getting pain for those reasons to then be told that's not that reason was a bit difficult actually and took a while to get my head around. But once I did, like my pain, I still get pain sometimes, although I did decide a couple of months ago I'm, I'm never going to get it again. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I thought I'm going to go with that plan. I'm just never going to get pain again. And it's been working pretty well. It's not foolproof actually, but it's working pretty well. But my pain doesn't worry me anymore. I just say, oh, well, it's just pain, you know, whereas even though I didn't sit on my bum and constantly protect my leg before and worried about exercise. I mean, I trained to become a Pilates teacher. In the same breath, I had probably subconsciously a protective mindset because of all the terms that are thrown about, about wear and tear, you know, don't wear out your joints, etc. cetera. Um, so if I was having a day where my leg was particularly sore, I would tell myself I had to take it a bit easy that day. Whereas it's those views now that I've thrown out the window. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Feel free to butt in. That was maybe a bit of a tangent. Um, ask questions. No, that's great. So you, you know, you you had this view that pain and injury were the same are the same thing, uh, and you know, I that's that was my view too. You know, a few years ago, and. Now you said, I think when you when you get pain, I think, oh, that's just pain, you know. So, so what do you think? So, if pain is not the same thing as injury, and pain is not because you also kind of, uh, I guess you implied that, you know, when you you said when you felt pain, you you assumed that was an indicator of you know what was going on inside your knee or your or your leg. Um, so if you no longer believe that, well, you know, how do you think of pain now? Like what, what is pain if it's not, if it's not the same thing as injury? Well, you know, um, as we said, it's always multifactorial and it's an emotional experience as well and can be affected by so many other things like lack of sleep, stress, etc. You know, I think even to the point of, we remember, don't we, subconsciously, like the last time I did X, it hurt my knee, you know, whatever that was, like picked up two heavy shopping bags. So maybe 
the next time you pick up two heavy shopping bags, your knee hurts again, but it's just, it's just a memory. It's just a trigger. Um, so what do I think pain is now? Oh, um, it's just pain. <laughs> it's just pain. And it's not what it's not anyway is an indicator that my knee's getting worse. Yeah. And that's such a relief to not carry that belief you know and and once you understand that you realize well why did i think that before actually because if i had two days where i experienced a lot of pain but then uh, then the next day i never it doesn't make sense that my knee got worse or the pain wouldn't have gone away right. you know and once you understand that then you know that's what's helped me um with my new outlook on pain I think sometimes, obviously, you know, you can overdo things a little bit. Like, you know, I've learned on the department all about graded exercise, uh, which is brilliant. You know, what a full, foolproof, well, not completely, but a foolproof plan. But life's not graded. So sometimes you overdo things. And if you do have limitations, then it can have an effect um, with your pain. But I bring myself back round to but it doesn't mean things are getting worse. Right. And yeah. And, and so I think that's, uh, that's a mistake that I made when I first, um, well, you've avoided a mistake that I made <laughs> when I first learned this stuff, which is I went running from one extreme to the other extreme. So I went from being extremely biomechanicals, like pain is an infallible indicator of exactly what's happening inside your tissues. Once I realized that wasn't true i went to the other extreme and thought okay pain's got nothing to do with anything that's happening inside your tissues and it's yeah you can just completely ignore all sensory information <laughs> and carry on and now I've, i feel i've moved to a more balanced place <laughs> that's somewhere in between those two uh points of view but it's great to see that you've you know you've avoided that mistake that i made <laughs> um so it is. It is an interesting. To me, it's like it's a. It's a quite of a. Um, a fast. To me, I still find it a fascinating concept that pain is an experience, and you know, like any other experience that we have, like it. It, it uh, consists of you know sen sensory information and thoughts about that sensory information, interpretation of that sensory information, emotions associated with that sensory information. And like you say, we can be conditioned or we can, um, you know, become habituated to experience pain in a certain situation because we experienced it in that situation in the past. And the, the, the analogy that pops to mind is, uh, you know, when you have a teenager like my wife and I do, um, and when, you know, they ring you up for the 99th time in a row saying, oh, surprise, surprise, I missed my bus, I'm going to be late home, <laughs> you're like, you just, you almost, I find myself often going into just a habitual reaction to that, like rolling my eyes and going, oh, you know, typical, whereas in, if, if I think about it, uh, I can, I can change my reaction and I can, I can be more um, compassionate. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that must be tough. You're stuck out in the cold. You missed your bus. Um, but I can, you know, I've, I can feel that habitual reaction, you know, sort of wanting to, starting to kick in, you know, 
if I unless I kind of consciously you know re re reevaluate or reframe it for myself, and I think pain can be can behave in a similar way. Like if if you've had pain in a in a situation in the past, it can be a kind of a a, a, a habitual reaction. I don't mean that we think or imagine our pain, but that your you know we we you, the body the brain the, your physiology can essentially just um, cause you to re-experience that pain just because the context is the same as it was when you previously experienced pain. So I guess, uh, you know, and the, and the, the, you know, as we talk about the, the international, the, the medical definition of pain is a sensory, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience uh, associated with or resembling that associated with uh, actual or potential tissue damage. Um, and so that's quite a mouthful, but it, it does say there's an emotional component there in that experience and that it's associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So yes, you know, according to that medical definition, pain and tissue damage can coexist, right? But they can also just be completely separate because it could be resembling that associated with potential t- it's like there's so many potentials and resemblings in that statement that they you can have pain without tissue damage you can have tissue damage without pain and you can have them both together like they're, they're just kind of separate oh they're not totally separate but then they're they're not uh they're not directly related i would say they're indirectly related with each other and so you have you said that changed you know that understanding changed the way you your relationship with your own pain where before you used to feel uh you know you used to worry i guess that when you experienced pain that was a sign that you were doing damage and that there was danger and you should take it easy whereas now you now just think oh that's just pain and you basically it seems to me like you basically just ignore it but you are you do have a limit like you know that you don't want to rile it up too much so you know you do listen to it but you basically I I guess it sounds like to me like your tolerance has expanded a lot and now you can you basically like ignore it a much wider band of pain you just basically ignore but it goes above a certain level then you're like okay I guess I better take it a bit easier is that how is it have, have I got that right yeah, yeah, you've got it right. And sometimes, you know, um, it can be different as as pain can. Um, and sometimes it is limiting because it's like really bloody sore to walk. So if it's like really sore to walk, you can only ignore it to a degree because, you know, you're not going to keep walking if it's really sore. Pain at the end of the day, even though, you know, pain and injury aren't the same thing and everything we've discussed it's still not nice. <laughs> it's still, you know, for people in pain, it's not pleasant, is it? You know, so um, so there's times that it's limiting for physical kind of that there. But but it's more like you say, I'm not worried about it. And mm. I think, um, you know, language that well-meaning health professionals use isn't helpful. You know, um, I had a surgeon tell me probably 20 years ago, oh, you're going to need, need a new knee, you know, Oh, why there wasn't anything helpful about him telling me that was there you know not not one thing um and then 
you know, and when they say things like that and wear and tear, that's what makes people, I think, adopt understandably adopt this protective mindset. And that's really not helpful either, because even though you know it's good to move and exercise, if you've got a protective mindset, that's going to hold you back a little bit, you know, Um and um, as you were talking there, something made me think of um, a little experiment I did myself that was a real, real kind of life changing for me. And I think it was last summer now. So I was on the diploma and I was learning about strength training. Um, my leg was giving me some problems. It's right, right. I really need to get my leg stronger. So um, I started having some one-to-ones with um, Heath, the educator on the course and we started squatting with kettlebells and we were increasing my weight and I was doing the workout once a week with Heath and once on my own on a on a Saturday I think it was anyway I woke up on a Friday morning in bed with woke up with a really sore knee and as I said before subconsciously I just thought I'm gonna better take it easy today now whether I did or didn't because you've got to live your life is a different matter but I would have had that mindset but instead, this day I woke up, and even though it was a day early for my session, it, I was due to go up four kilos. And I laid in bed and I thought, based on what I've learned about pain, you know, sod it, I'm going to go and lift that kettlebell. And that was huge for me, Raph. Like, that was a big experiment, you know. And I went downstairs. I can't remember the weight, what weight I was on now then, 16 kilos. I went downstairs. I did my three sets of 15 and my knee was absolutely fine. If anything, my pain went away. That's amazing. So it was. And what's what's amazing to me about that is not that your pain went away, um, because exercise well is well known to have an analgesic or anti-pain um, effect, but that you had that. Um, I guess your not just your mindset, but I guess it must be a, a, your emotional, re, you know, co- uh, ex- response or experience around that pain had changed, so that you did have a different thought, and you were, you know, you felt confident to just, you know, push through it basically and ignore it <laughs> and carry on. And uh, yeah, that, that's 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 amazing. So. Do, I mean, do you re- do you recall? Um, was was there a moment when you know you kind of changed your view on pain, or was it just a kind of a gradual thing? Like, what was what was what was it that changed your view? Like, you know, was there was there some evidence? Was there a moment? Was there an experience um, that resulted in you changing your your views on pain? Well, uh, I think mainly, um, you know, whilst on the diploma that through the lectures that you gave and the evidence that you presented to us, backing up everything that we've just said about how pain is multifactorial, how it's never just tissue status. Um, And I think we spoke one time, and it might have been knee osteoarthritis or hip, and with me, I've got knee osteoarthritis. And I think it said you could get somebody with mild osteoarthritis of the knee, let's say, and they are experiencing a lot of pain. And then you could get somebody with an X-ray showing quite extreme osteoarthritis and they experience very little pain. Well, I couldn't ignore that. <laughs> you know, when you told me that information, it's like, well, I, I can't ignore that. 
And if that's the case, if that's really true, and it did take me, you know, some head scratching, then I want to be that person. Hmm. I want to be the person who doesn't experience the pain. Um, and so, sorry, so your question, what ch- it was just a lot of things, but it was the evidence presented on the course, on the diploma, um, and a lot of sort of deep thinking myself, realising certain things. Yeah, I think I think it was I think it was that really. I can't think of anything else. But but um when you were repeating my story there about my experiment with the kettlebells, that I had the confidence to do it, um that's what changed, wasn't it? Like I had the confidence. I decided, I believed in myself that I could do that and that it was gonna be okay. Mm. And from other things that we've learned on the course, that that's one of the biggest predictors of outcomes with things, isn't it? If we believe that we're going to be okay, if we believe that we're going to get better, um, then then that's what happens. Right. And that uh, confidence you describe, you know, the literature in the literature they call that self-efficacy or pain self-efficacy, um, which is also a, a pretty powerful predictor of outcome um, in a lot of situations. That's interesting to me that your kind of moment of insight was very, um, I guess, kind of context, like it was related to your personal experience of pain and you just, you were presented with with this uh, research that said, okay, well, people with osteoarthritis do tend on average to have pain, you know, more often than people who don't have osteoarthritis. But within that, people with very severe, like, x-rays don't necessarily have more pain than people with very mild x-rays. And it can, you know, the pain and the x-ray aren't aren't very well related, if at all. And so you just thought, oh, well, I could be that person with the terrible x-ray and not very little to no pain. Or I could be the person with the terrible X-ray and a lot of pain, I, but I prefer to be the person with little to no pain. <laughs> so, so you know, you kind of had like those options now, and you were like, okay, great. Well, I, <laughs> I know which option I prefer. So that I guess that was a real, there was a real internal pull for you in the direction of like, okay, well, if if this makes sense to me and I can actually embody this, there's a, there's a true benefit to me in. You know, in 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 really getting to grips with this. So, how did it? You know, how did this start to show up in your work with your clients? Okay, so now, as you know, as I said earlier, I think especially like go back when I first started teaching. If somebody was in pain, it would have like under the skin tried to hide it, but freak me out. You know, I'd have been like, "Oh dear, I'm." causing them some damage you know I better not carry on doing that um so now that I know pain and injury aren't the same thing and everything we've discussed I am sympathetic to somebody's pain obviously you know um but it doesn't worry me when it comes to teaching them um especially because I've got a whole other skill set now um which is understanding graded exercise um so if somebody's in pain you start easy um and i'm happy to say to people now you know if you can tolerate it 
then do a couple more. And if not, we stop. And using the 24-hour rule of if it hurts when you're doing it, but it goes away after, then I wouldn't worry about it. You know, if it flares up pain that you have for more than 24 hours, then next time we'll just do a little bit less. Um, so it's given me the confidence to work with people in pain. And what's really helped that as well is understanding tissue healing times, which that was a really big light, light bulb moment, you know, no understanding tissue and healing times. So to know when something is no longer an injury because it's healed. And then after that, it's persistent pain, um, that's, yeah, that, that's given me the confidence to work with people in pain and help them. It, it's tempting sometimes to try and educate people about their pain because of the, you know, um, because of how much it's changed my life. And I really have to stop myself doing that, <laughs> you know, because as we've discussed, then the literature shows that a little bit of pain education is better than a lot. Yeah. So I have to, I have to, um, I have to stop myself doing that. Um, yeah, because when I learned this and understood it, it was kind of like, oh, my God, I want to change the world with this information. I want to help people how I've been helped. Um, but it's not simple. You know, it's not any – maybe for some people it is, but I was exposed to weekly lectures with you where I came off them at first not understanding it, and it took a bit of time, you know. So I appreciate you can't change somebody's mind about pain in in a paragraph in in an hour with them, you mm. know. And even though I probably still have a desire to do that, I just keep remembering that a little bit of pain education is better than a lot. Well, I wouldn't I, – actually, I wouldn't necessarily say it's better than a lot. So the research by Traeger et al. just found that a lot wasn't better than a little. Um, and so when they, when they gave usual care, which was reassurance and advice to stay active – um, versus reassurance advice stay active plus intensive pain education, what they found was no difference in outcomes for those two groups. Um, and the, the intensive pain education in that research, which was from 2018, was based on the Mosley and Butler uh, Explained Pain workbook. So they basically went through the, the Explained Pain book. Um, and I can't recall exactly how long that intervention was, but it, you know, it would have been a, a week or two, you know, not... 12 months and it's interesting to me that you've had this experience sort of like a real reframing of your pain and it actually has helped with your pain um but the and that you've had extremely intensive pain education i mean you did like 43 weeks of <laughs> you know pain education <laughs> and that actually did have a quite a profound effect for you and so i wonder um I wonder if we re-ran the Traeger experiment and, uh, but instead of like, you know, a couple of sessions of pain education, we did like, you know, a year of pain education, whether that would, whether that would make, you know, more of a difference. I think there are many other factors, you know, obviously you came in very curious, you know, very motivated to learn, um, you know, so there were lots of other factors that were intrinsic to you um, and not to, not to what we taught you necessarily that sort of contributed to the success 
that you've had with that, with your own personal experience. But yeah, that is interesting to me. And I don't, I doubt that experiment will ever run because to run like a year long study would just be horrendously expensive and logistically difficult and whatever. But um, yeah, to me, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting thought experiment. It is interesting. And I tend to think, I, I tend to think that, you know, um, that it would be successful because. That's the thing, isn't it? It's a very complex subject that even the pain scientists don't fully understand now. So if you try to, you know, to just drop a little bit, great. But if you try to cram, you know, a year's worth of knowledge or a degree's worth of knowledge into half an hour, you're just going to confuse that person if it's not explained properly. Right. And obviously it depends on the individual, you know, because pain is... um, you know, people can be very attached to their pain and if you don't say it right and it comes across as if you're saying their pain is not real, then they they could be really hurt and offended by that. So it is something you have to be very sensitive about as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you on the people being attached to their pain. Um I feel like that's not a useful uh not a useful thought to have like it may or may not be true that people are attached to their pain but i just feel like if we as practitioners believe that someone's attached to their pain then well that's kind of it's i don't think any product anything productive comes from it i, I mean i guess the way i think of it is uh you know people you know pain when people have pain for a long time as as disabling it's you know it's a very big it it has a very big emotional weight in their in their consciousness you know it, it's a big part of their daily experience of living and it influences you know many other areas of their life and so i think it has a lot of emotional salience you know it's like it's very important to them in the sense that it's very present and very you know there's there's a strong set of emotions associated with it but I, I don't, in my view, I don't think that's the same thing as them being attached to it like they want it to continue, you know, like you're attached to something you love. I think it's just more like it's it's very emotionally present and very emotionally powerful for them. And if if someone perceives, like which can happen when, when we explain, oh, well, pain's actually not, doesn't take place in the tissues, it takes place in the brain, which is factually correct that if people then perceive that they're being that we're saying to them like oh you're just imagining it right and they're having this like in, intense disabling experience for years and then you just come along and say oh you're just imagining it, it's all in your mind it's like yeah well no wonder people will get you know <laughs> upset by that now i know that's not what you're saying but if 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 their perception is that's what you're saying then, yeah, people can absolutely, it can be counterproductive to explain uh, in that situation. But, yeah, I just don't think, uh, I don't think it's useful for us as practitioners to, to, to believe that someone's attached to that because then it kind of becomes like a, a push-pull between us and the client where we think they're kind of like incorrect, you know, and we have to kind of fix, fix their, yeah, yeah. their wrong beliefs. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, no, I agree with what you've just said. Maybe just, I think I've heard that expression before attached to your pain. So I just <laughs> kind of um, repeated it there. So I think, so. Um, 
I'm just thinking about that last sentence you said, like, uh, what did you say, sorry, between the practitioner and the client, it would end up being... Well, yeah, I'd, I just think like, you know, the therapy, as you, you know, as you well know, like the therapeutic alliance is the foundation of any therapeutic interaction. And that's where, you know, we as a practitioner and the, and the client like and trust each other and agree on shared goals and, and strategies. And so what that essentially says is, and, and is, a th- and stronger therapeutic alliance predicts better outcomes. Um, and so what that essentially says is like a therapeutic alliance is when we're sitting on the same side of the table together, you know, collaboratively trying to scratch our heads and solve this problem, you know, and it's like, okay, what do you think? Or what do you think? What do you think? And we work together on it. Whereas when, if I frame it as like, oh, you're my client and, oh, well, Natasha, she's kind of just attached to her pain. So she's, you know, it kind of makes me think like you're malingering or you're like, you're, you know, you're, I, I'm fighting against you to try and make you get rid of this erroneous belief where it's not us together problem solving. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. And not in a, um, so I, I didn't mean it in that way, like attached, you know. I think I just meant like you've just got to be, well, it, it's a big part of their life, you know, and they've, like you say, you hit you hit the nail on your he- head when if, they've experienced such a lot of pain for such a long time. And then if it's not explained correctly through no fault of the therapist, you know, um, then... Or even sometimes, even sometimes if it is explained correctly, right? So what we say is not always the same thing that what they hear. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think maybe what I found hard at points thinking back when I'm scratching my head was like, what do you mean? I didn't have to experience this pain, for example, right. like thoughts like that, you know. So all I meant is that you do have to be, and I'm I'm sure, you know, everybody would. You do just have to be sensitive um, about that because it it's a, it was a big one for me to get my head around. So right. So when you've been protecting, you know, for years, in the in the mistaken belief that you're doing damage anytime there's discomfort and you realize oh crap i could have been running and squatting and jumping and you know walking downstairs and doing all of those things this whole time but i've just like been in this kind of self-imposed you know small box of sort of limited activity yeah that can that can be very upsetting to people um so you know what are the i guess what are the key assumptions or what are some of the, the key assumptions that you've changed your view on? So, all right, so you used to believe that pain, you know, and tissue damage were basically the same thing, but there's a whole bunch of assumptions of, that underpin that view and that kind of are the natural, um, you know, I guess consequences of that view, you know, like, you know, changing biomechanics is important, you know, posture is important. Um, yeah, correct technique is important. Cueing <laughs> muscles is important. Um, yeah, and a whole bunch of other things as well. So yeah, what are some of those key assumptions that you've changed your view on, uh, you know, around this topic? Um, around this topic and I suppose just everything else I learned on the diploma. Um, I mean, for me, after my initial training, like it was great to know all these exercises and get teaching people 
but I there was lots of things I questioned, things that just didn't seem to make sense. And that was either a case of I didn't fully understand them or maybe my questions hadn't been answered. You know, so for me, it was like, why is neutral spine important? And why do I cue abdominals for absolutely everything? And I, it's not yet, yeah, I don't have to cue triceps in a push up, you know? So it was all these like unanswered questions that, that I had. Um, so for me, actually, like when I discovered the podcast, um, a lot of my unanswered questions started getting answered. And actually, for me, it was like, hallelujah, brilliant. These things that didn't make sense, I, I don't have to do them anymore. Now, that wasn't everything. Like I say, they're neutral spine and and abdominals. They were easy to throw out the window for me. You know, I felt like my teaching became more fun. I didn't have to worry about those things as much. But as for things like you touched there on posture, like, you know, being shown evidence that posture doesn't cause pain, that was a bit of a head scratcher at the time as well, you know. Um, but then when you, yeah, you look at the evidence and you start realizing that so many, so many things that we're told that there is no evidence behind them and it's just been people putting two and two together and, and getting five, you know, and things that make sense, like they're really believable stories. They make sense. Um, so, so for me, understanding all of those things has just made teaching more fun and it's allowed me to concentrate on the important things um clients goals and like you said therapeutic alliance um and the importance of our physical activity guidelines things that they are really good quality evidence behind that you can enhance the quality and quantity of people's lives so i tend to concentrate on there's, those things now there's quite a bit in what you said there that i'd like to uh, unpack but what i'd like to uh, really i guess the first thing that that comes to mind is what you said about like two and two making five and it's like it making things making sense or being plausible on the surface and like that thing about posture this that this was my experience with posture that i was i was taught the same as you that you know, posture, you know, bad posture causes pain and, you know, therefore good good posture can alleviate pain or prevent pain. And so I would, you know, clients would come in and they'd have pain and they'd have, you know, quote, poor posture. And so I would do exercises to, quote, fix their posture and then lo and behold, their pain, you know, went away. And so I was like, oh, well, there's your evidence that this works, right? But, and so that did seem completely plausible to me. But then later on when it was pointed out to me, that an alternative that there's an alternative explanation that also fits those facts. I was like, oh, and and the alternative explanation is, of course, that any exercise helps people with pain because the effects of exercise on pain are more general, like uh, that affect the whole system. Things like improving mental health, in, uh, reducing systemic inflammation, improving expectation of outcome, you know, like the releasing endorphins. Um, you know, providing social support. Uh, you know, there's so many sy systemic effects of exercise that, uh, you know, when you do exercise to, quote, correct someone's posture, what you're actually doing that's probably more influencing their pain rather than anything you're doing to their posture is actually reducing inflammation and improving their their mental well-being and, you know, all these other things. And that it's like, oh, so that's, that's a different you know, totally different view on that explains those same facts and also explains why those other clients got better 
that I did different exercises with, you know, and didn't correct their posture or what, you know, so it's, yeah, so the, the idea of like uh, things being, I guess, superficially sort of plausible or common sense, but when you sort of walk around the side of that and look at it from the other angle, it kind of looks different you, and, and you can go, oh yeah, that, that, <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't make as much sense. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and on that, fixing people's postures and things, the whole like being the expert fixer didn't, didn't sit well with me. I didn't think I was very good at it. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't feel like an expert fixer. So when I learned that I didn't have to be, you know, again, that was like, great, you know, um, for me. Um, and, and also knowing that I don't have to know all the answers, you know, and especially coming back to our talk, topic about pain, you know, if a client says, well, why does my knee hurt when I'm doing this? You know, once upon a time, I'd have felt like I needed to know the answer for that. Whereas actually, chances are nobody knows the answer for Who that. Who knows why your knee um, hurts? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Let's just, I don't know. Let's just take your feet a bit wider and see if that helps, you know. Um, so it's great not thinking you have to know all the answers. So. so you've let go of a lot of those things that you described, which are really f foundational to a lot of Pilates, you know, a lot of the way, the way a lot of people think about, you know, what Pilates is, you know, posture, cueing abdominals, you know, all, all of that type of thing. So like, well, what the heck do you do in your Pilates session, you know, for the whole session? Like, all right, if you're not fixing people's posture – and you're not cueing abdominals, you're not telling them which muscles to activate. It's like, well, what are you doing? What do you, what do, you do all day? Um, so my mat classes, like my group mat classes have changed um, because I don't cue abdominals. That's been for quite a long time now, you know. Um, they've changed, but they probably, if there's still a Pilates mat class, you know, I do try to chuck a few strength in, you know, getting people a few exercises, getting them close to their 10 RM. Um, but my one-to-one -one sessions have really changed. That's that's what's really changed. Um, and so an initial um, consultation with somebody, you know, building that therapeutic alliance, I'd make sure that I um, was listening to them, um, trying to um listen carefully to see if they had any goals why they were here etc so have a good chat and people really appreciate that you know i um i improved my listening skills <laughs> being on the diploma and then you know make a plan with that client and again like it became a bit more about it became more than about just Pilates for me, learning the importance of physical activity guidelines and how literally you can help people live longer, then I'll speak to them about what other exercise they do out with Pilates. So things that they're not going to do with me, but we chat about, do they get some cardio, you know, do they walk, etc. So just get to know the client, get to know what they want and their goals. And then when it comes to my one-to-ones, I use my toolboxes a lot. Like we still play Pilates as well, um, but I use my toolboxes to um, help people get stronger. And and so just for, the, just for people who don't know what the heck you're talking about when you say toolbox, what do you mean by toolbox? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I've not got a hammer and and sort of screws and things there. Um, so on the diploma, we a toolbox is graded exercise, progressive exercise. Start easy. And once your client can do that, you know, like three sets of 10 of that given exercise, you make it slightly harder. That could be in a strength capacity. It could be um, control, you know, range of motion. Um, and then... And then after they can, they've done that one, you give them another one slightly harder so that you're progressively making the exercise harder. Right. So just they're basically just a list of exercise progressions. Like, so here's this exercise and then here's a slightly harder version of this exercise and a slightly harder version of this exercise, you know, times five or ten or whatever. Um, so what do you – so you're spending more time – talking with your clients, particularly at the start and listening to their story, listening to their goals and creating a shared, creating a therapeutic alliance and creating a shared plan with them. Uh, and then... And then that's the first session. And then um, what I'm really loving at the moment is focusing more um, on the strength aspect of fitness. Hence, I've changed my business name recently um, to the Pilates and Strength Coach um, for a couple of reasons. Like, one, I keep talking about physical activity guidelines, you know, but all components of fitness are important, but the only two the activity guidelines recommend are cardio and strength. So once I learned that, it was like, well, I, I need to start putting some strength in into my um, sessions and and that and I just like to say that's me personally. You know, there's lots of different styles of Pilates up there, and there's lots of different ways it can be taught, and they're all great. You know, and there's room for everybody. Just me personally, I'm really enjoying um, adding more strength challenges to my sessions. And what does that look like? And with the constant um, taking people to near failure with exercises at around the ten. 12 rep max, which all this terminology, you know, before the diploma, I didn't really know what any of this was. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I've learned a lot. So taking people to near failure and, and what's been really helpful for me, like, I've, you know, all the knowledge and confidence that I gained on the diploma, I've then gone on to um, and do another course with Heath working through his toolboxes. So I've got a big, I've got, um, I've got a couple of, uh, new plans and skill sets to do so so yeah it looks like giving somebody something that they can't do more than 10 of getting them to a point that they can and giving them something harder and through that and so sorry just sorry to jump in here um so what so you know what sort of movements do you give people like are you giving people pilates movements uh, or kettlebells or Thank you. a bit of both <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for jumping in. So some of them are Pilates exercises. You know, they are Pilates exercises. Um, squats, and yeah, sometimes kettlebell squats, but I mean, a squat, footwork on the reformer is a squat, isn't it? You know, like, so, you know, I do a different exercise on the mat, like a pike-up style exercise, but we do that on the chair. And what I mean by that is like, what's Pilates anyway to a degree. But yes, some of them are Pilates exercises. But after learning that the foremost important exercises in the world is a squat 
a push, or sorry, three most, <laughs> a squat, a push, and a pull, then I'm making sure I incorporate those into every session. Start easy. That could be for a lot of my clients. They they don't come to me super strong, although I have got one client at the moment. She's stronger than I've ever had, and I'm really going to have to up my game <laughs> to try and cat, like stay in line with her. But her aside, um, you know, I get a lot of people that could not, definitely couldn't do a full push-up. So I start them at the wall, you know, and ask them to get their elbows all the way to the wall. And that's hard for um, for a lot of people. And then once they can master that, we'll take them to um, a table or the back of a chair and do exactly the same push-up, but a different relationship to gravity, do it there, then take them to a surface, a lower surface seat of a chair, and then take them to the floor. And it's so rewarding for people, you know. And I think what you've described there is such a profound, a simple but profound truth, which is that people pe- getting stronger or getting more proficient, you know, making progress, getting more flexible, improving your control, tangible progress is intrinsically motivating to, to us as humans. You know, when we feel ourselves getting better at doing something and, you know, becoming more able, that is inherently motivating and makes us want to do more of that thing and i think you know many of us you know this i was certainly in this situation as pilates instructors feel like we need to you know give a lot of variety to keep it interesting for our clients but i think what actually keeps it interesting for people much more than anything else is actually just getting better like you know noticing like oh i can do a full push-up now i couldn't do one six weeks ago you know, that is inherently exciting and makes people really look forward to their sessions because they want to go, okay, now I want to do two push-ups. <laughs> you know, now I want to do 10 push-ups. And yeah, so I feel like uh, that's a really powerful truth there, sort of hidden in what you said there, Natasha, that I think in it, it's not necessary in many cases to use a large number of exercises or to program variety into your sessions because just making progress is inherently motivating for people. And again, there's some people that love, you know, and some teachers as well who just love variety and love the choreography, you know, and and respect to that. But that's not me, actually. (laughs) I don't like a billion and one choices. And personally, for me, you know, um, I... One, I find that easier. And two, I do think you can record the results. It's hard to record results if you're doing a different exercise all of the time, you know, Um, and and my clients are loving it because they're seeing the results and and they're really getting the results. You know, the feedback that I've been getting is fantastic, you know, from, from a gentleman you know, in his late 60s saying that to carry his industrial power washer from the front to the back of the house, he used to have to stop three, four times and put it down. And he got his wife shouting at him every time he did it and not put it down on the nice floor. And then last week he carried it all the way through without having to stop once, you know. So when somebody tells you something like that, it's it's really, yeah, rewarding. And for them, you know, so. Uh, and like you say, with results, actually, it's like you say, it is if you're doing different exercises every week, you may be getting stronger, 
but you, it's hard to know because it's like, okay, well, if I could do, you know, three teasers and now I can do four roll-ups, does that mean I've got stronger or or not? Like, a, you know, how many roll-ups equals one teaser? Um, whereas if I could do three teasers and now I can do four teasers, well, I'd know I got I, I got better, right? It's it's much more obvious to me that I've improved. And so it's, it's much more easy to make those results tangible to people when they're doing the same thing, but now they can just do more of it or can, they can do a harder version of it or they can go for a, you know, a bigger range of motion with it or, or whatever. Um, and so if you're working towards, you know, carrying your power washer from one end of the house to the other, but you're not there yet, you know, but you can now, you've moved from doing push-ups on the wall to doing push-ups on the back of the chair, right? There is tangible progress there. Even though you haven't achieved your end goal yet, you can you know you can see that you're making progress towards it, and so I think that's that you know inherently uh, motivating for people and strengthens that their their desire to keep going and and you know their optimism. So what do you you know what do you see? I mean, what do you see now as the key skills you know of a of a great instructor? Like what what are, what are the what are the what are the, the skill baskets that you're working on or that you think are important for instructors? So for not just me, for for all other instructors. Yeah. Oh <laughs> um, I don't know, I've only ever thought about the ones that are important to me in a way. Um, I mean, obviously, when it comes to, I mean, I don't know, you've employed people, so you would have looked for skills in, in other teachers. I kind of just work alone and think about me. But obviously, being a great communicator is important, you know, in being a teacher. Um, you know, I would say that's a skill. And then, oh, there's different ones. I mean, I've explained what's important to me, like understanding strength training a bit more, Um understanding what evidence-based teaching is um and well I don't know I've not thought about that really Russ being open-minded to things changing you know I, I would say that's an important skill because we could do a course you know I've just learned a lot of great information from you but in five years that information might be it's going to be different, isn't it? You know, um, so staying open-minded and wanting to to learn, I'd say is really important. And focusing on what's important, again, this is just my personal opinion, but focusing on what's important for your clients and having, and having the skills to help them. Mm. And when you say what's important for your clients, what do you mean by that? Um, well, again, going back to understanding physical activity guidelines, um, which I've mentioned a few times, but, you know, for people that don't know, that's the weekly recommended um, amount of exercise that humans should be doing um, to, yeah, give them the best chance of being healthy and living longer, backed, backed by science. So once I understood those, it, it just made my job so much more rewarding, like I can really really help people like have their best interest at heart not worrying about what the latest fanciest exercise is because again but this is a personal thing that's not important to me you know 
it's it's having their their interests at heart and having the skills to help them. Mm. It is truly, uh, I find that highly motivating for me as well. And knowing that, like you said, we're literally saving lives by helping people um, do you know, physical activity that meets the physical activity guidelines. You, you know, you can you can literally extend somebody's lifespan. And you know that, like you know, what a noble mission. You know, what an what a profound impact that is to have for somebody and uh, how motivating that is as an as a as a professional to be able to know that what we do is so impactful and so powerful it's like literally saving people's lives you know literally extending by potentially by years you know how long someone lives and not only how long they live but their health span as well you know the quality of those years not just the quantity of the years so yeah, it truly is amazing, and I think um, the physical activity guidelines are such a simple thing. You know, like you can—I'm sure you can rule them off in about ten seconds. But it's such a powerful and profound <laughs> concept. Yeah, I mean, every time I—and I do love telling people them—I must admit—and <laughs> every time I do, I get a little brain, you know, brain exploding emoji. Even though we all know, you know, we're in this profession, how good exercise is for us when you truly understand how good it is for us, you know. Um, and I'm, you know, a slide from the diploma that I often see in my mind, you know, that exercise really is the closest thing to the elixir of life that we have. Um, and, you know, I feel very passionately about that. And again, going back to the diploma, when you learn about the positive, when we learn about the positive impacts for exercise for older adults, which I always knew, you know, that was important. But again, the study, there was a study, you'll remember the figures, but um, was it people over, I want to say 90, and maybe I did some arms and legs onto this story. Yeah, yeah it was nonagenarians. Yeah. High intensity weight training in nonagenarians. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the huge impact it had on their strength and everything in quite a short period of time. Was it just a six-week study yeah, or something? something like that. Yeah. You know, it was just like I was driving about in my car and if I saw an older adult, I literally wanted to put the window down and shout out the window to them, start strength training, you, you should know. be strength training, um, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And I was like delighted around that time I got a new client who was, yeah, I think he is. He's in his late seventies. He was like, "Awesome, brilliant, right?" Where's the kettlebells? <laughs> you know. And I've given him a very simple program um, because he's doing it at home, and that's another big win for me. Working with a simple program, including a squat, push, and a pull, making it simple. Then my clients are doing their homework. You know, so I keep it really simple for him. I lend him kettlebells, and he's he's doing his homework. Amazing. Uh, so just um, both for you and, and for the listeners, would you mind uh, sharing the physical activity guidelines, please? Yes. I'd love to. <laughs> Watch, I'll come wrong. No, I won't. Okay, so physical activity guidelines say that um, if you can do between 150 minutes and 300 of moderate intensity cardio a week, so that might sound like a lot, but if we go the 150 minutes, that could be a 22-minute walk every day, a brisk walk where you're, um, you know, if you're trying to have a chat, your speaking has changed just a little bit. So that's moderate. 
if you love vigorous exercise and you're a runner, you can half that figure to 75 to 150 minutes a week. So there's your cardio. And then if you do two to three strength training sessions a week, which sounds like a lot, but I believe that really what they're asking for there is just about an hour, isn't it? But, you know, in one session, you wouldn't do a whole hour. So an hour of week of strength training. And if you hit those figures, you reduce your chance of dying in the next 10 years by brain explosion, explosion emoji by half, yeah. you know. So that's incredible. It is amazing. And uh, great, uh, accurate Great accurate summary of the physical activity guidelines as well, Natasha. And um, as you know, in we we look at research in the diploma that shows that something like half of people with a bachelor in exercise science don't even know those guidelines. So, uh, well done. <laughs> and that blows my mind. That's like, how could you get through a three year degree and not remember this like two sentence <laughs> thing that is at the very core of what you're studying? I always wonder how the line um, reduces your chance of dying in the next 10 years by half will land with people. Like, I think it's amazing, but I'm always slightly nervous about that line. But I'm kind of in my mind, well, take it, you know, take it for what it is. You know, um, I did recently, I presented a mini workshop for the first time, which I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that over a year ago. And I spoke about physical activity guidelines and the three most important exercises in the world. Um, oh, what are they? Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't remember. Uh, a squat, a push and a pull. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we finish i don't think so you know so we spoke about how looking at the evidence and the diploma has changed my relationship with pay which obviously i'm incredibly grateful for uh um, that really has been life-changing and obviously that's helped me work with clients in pain and I suppose sometimes I feel slightly frustrated that I'd love to be able to share that message with everybody, you know, Um, and with people like myself with knee osteoarthritis. And it's such a shame that, I mean, I know doctors are really underworked, uh, overworked, not underworked, overworked, (laughs) and budgets here in the UK aren't great for the national health. But that said, it's really sad when you go for an appointment they're willing to say, we'll put you on the list to get a new knee. It's a two-year waiting list, by the way, but we'll put your name down. And then they just let you walk out the door with no information about how much you could help yourself. You know? Um, Why don't you uh, go and do some kettlebell squats for a couple of years and then maybe you won't even feel like you need a new knee at that point? Absolutely. Well, that's, I mean, I've had that journey, Raph, where every so often I have had a period of a lot of pain, you know, and I've had a really particularly bad spell. At that point, you can deal with it for a while and then you're kind of pulling your hair out. What can I do? And in those points, uh, when that happens, I find the hospital just out of frustration because there's nothing else to do. Um, and I go along. So the last time I went, was last year sometime, but I waited a long time for that appointment. And in the time I waited, my knee had got better anyway, but I still went for the appointment. But that's what 
that's what the surgeon said to me. You know, there's nothing else we can do for you now. We'll put you on the wait list for a new knee. But I had a conversation with him about pay when I was there. Um, and yeah, but then he just let me leave. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have that new knee. I'm going to keep uh, kettlebell squatting and I'm not going to need it. And, and as well, like for people that, for people listening that work with people with arthritis, I've got it, I can't even say it properly. Um, I think sometimes, and through my own experience, is that symptoms can be really crap, but actually the symptoms aren't the arthritis, it's the lack of strength. That's actually what's causing you the bigger problem, you know, because you've stopped moving due to the pain, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's actually a lack of strength that's a part of the problem, let's say. But it's hard to distinguish the two, if that makes sense. You just know that you're having problems. It is hard to distinguish. And it's really, I mean, basically, it's it's really impossible to, to unpa- unpick all of the many things that contribute to pain, you know. And unfortunately, you know, a sense of hopelessness or, um, you know, fear that comes from you know, well-meaning but ill-informed health professionals talking, you know, using terms like bone on bone or you'll need a new knee, um, you know, don't help matters either. No, definitely not. Definitely not. And that, and don't be scared to work with people with these conditions as long as you start easy and repeat. <laughs> start easy, repeat, and, and gradually build up. Um, no, because what I was going to say is, well, like, especially if you talk about strength training, that can sound scary to some people. You know, it can be like, oh, that means lifting heavy things and I could hurt myself doing that. Well, one, if you start easy and build up, use graded exercise. And two, the flip side of that is you're actually leaving yourself open to injury by not being strong. You know, like too little load, too little load is a bit big predictor for injury because you don't strength train um you've maybe got sore back and you're worried about doing exercise for your back so you've not built up capacity and then you go to the garden center at the weekend and pick up a really heavy bag of compost and lo and behold you get back pain right and we 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 say uh injury you know i'm sure everyone listening has heard the term injury can be caused by too much too soon but what we often leave out is the other part of that, which is preceded by too little for too long. And, and learning that and understanding that as well has helped me gently introduce the um, concept of working a bit harder and introducing strength training to some of my clients who would have been a bit fearful in the past. You know, I've helped them see the benefits and understand the, the, the um, too little load can, can be a bad thing. For sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, I think you are um, educating people and sharing this with people um, for sure because if, you know, even though you might not be like giving seminars or, or whatever, uh, your clients are learning through experiential learning. You know, they are getting stronger and they're noticing that they're becoming more able and more empowered and their pain's decreasing and their mental health's improving and they're less fearful of movement and, you know, like, so they're you know, less disabled by their uh, condition. So you, you're doing it. Yep. Well, it's working for me, so just want to help other people as well. Great talk, Natasha. Thank you, Russ. Thank <laughs> you.
after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.